0: Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely, the ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk To Anyone, the podcast where we open the bonnet on our communications engine. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Zelinski. And this week we wanted to talk about masters and servants. Tom, I am not a fan of... Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I'm sort of getting that in at the start, because I think that uh, very often the way we think about the relationship between people who are using services and people who are providing them comes with a whole load of kind of narrative attached to it. In fact, uh, I think it may be you were the first person that did a proper masters and servants improv class with me because it's a, an area which is fraught with interesting power dynamics.
1: It's great fodder for improvisers. It's got a long theatrical comedy pedigree from Shakespeare to Moliere to Goldoni. all these uh, wonderful characters. And as you say, it's about power relationships. It's not about what as actors and improvisers we call status, which is how much confidence or power somebody seems to have. This is all about a relationship in which one person controls the activities of another. And so playing... And the status opposite the power dynamic, for example, can be fun. That's what's happening in Jeeves and
0: Worcester. Yes, or the more recent example um, with the marriage of Figaro, which came up as a, as a bone of contention between a working class Labour politician and her somewhat posher Conservative adversary in the House of Commons. Indeed. <laughs> The history of it all, I think, is still very, very prevalent, particularly from the point of view of us two sitting here in London. But because of the history of Britain in the world um, and its uh, imperial history, that some of that dynamic has been exported and is part of the English-speaking world absolutely everywhere. Um, and there is uh, a, still a, a, a global fascination with the British relationship between masters and servants, which I think is part of the reason for the the, the fevered interest, even in something as absurd as Downton Abbey. Just for those of you who are fans of Downton, <laughs> let me make it clear. Um, I don't follow it very closely, and it may be that if I watched every episode like you did, I would absolutely love it. Um, but I do think there's a certain sentimentality in that it's trying to present The relationship between the lords of the manor and the people who actually do the cooking and cleaning as if they are part of one entirely happy family and have no problem, not no significant problem ultimately with people crossing the floor. I I remember that one of the chauffeurs marries one of the the, the ladies of the household, although there are many, many... famous examples from history. Um, It's incredibly rare. It makes more sense to me when I see um, stories in which people are actually uh, enforcing those dynamics rather than uh, announcing that they don't really matter anymore.
1: Yeah, and uh, these days we don't have the same sort of stratification uh, in society, but there definitely are occasions when you do see these kind of power dynamics. And the two most obvious ones are within a a hierarchical organization, Mm -hmm. where I report to my manager, my manager reports to another manager, and so on, all the way up to God. Yes, And of course, in retail, uh, where the customer is always right, Alex.
0: The retail example was one that occurred to me. Um, and also, particularly, I think, within hierarchical organizations, when people are doing domestic tasks. So who is taking the notes and who is making the coffee is a very kind of fevered and somewhat gendered question, I think, um, in a meeting. But yes, in, um, in the, in, there is a way in which, once upon a time, we would have a chauffeur, and, uh, and now, actually, we we take taxis. We'd have a cook and uh, all of those people. And now we have Deliveroo. We, we have Deliveroo. Or, we, you know, people, they went out and started their own businesses running restaurants. Uh, you know, butlers and footmen, the kind of the relic of that, I think, is in luxury hotels and hotel concierges, Um restaurants and waiters, I think, is one uh, place in which there is such a very strong echo of that sort of, I suppose, Edwardian servant culture. Nannies now run play schools, governesses we send the kids to prep schools, you know, or or they do. Um, and, And even our confessors and priests we now pay in the form of therapists and shrinks. And, you know, corners of the internet and places like Facebook and Twitter are full
1: of people suffering through retail and other jobs. Mm. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are two narratives which I see coming up again and again. One is, woe is me, look at the world of idiots I am forced to move through. <laughs> the gas yeah. of the customers. Yeah. So you have customers at restaurants saying things like, I'm a vegan, so I'll have the spaghetti carbonara. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, and the other one you get is uh, malicious compliance, mm. which is always terribly fun, where uh, a senior manager's idiocy is weaponized against them uh, and
0: uh, <laughs> we're, uh, doing exactly what you're told, results in catastrophe. By a senior person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we thus exposing, to a degree, I suppose, the kind of the rottenness of those power dynamics that don't have any space for imagination within yeah. them. When I think about this, I'm very conscious that one's take on it may very well be influenced by one's experience. Um, I know the uh, cook and food writer, Anthony Bourdain, used to say that, uh, that working as a waiter humanized one enormously because suddenly you kind of, you got to see how people... Ha- their own relationship as customers with that power dynamic and, uh, and that you're, it suddenly makes you into a much better customer in those circumstances because you know what it's like on the other side of the floor. I have never been a waiter. I have worked in retail, I think, which has a certain flavour of that to a degree, in which, uh, particularly it was in bookshops, which I suppose is a kind of a, it's it's the snotty end of (laughs) retail to a degree. Um, But you would see people um, very very nice. You get the same sort of uh, idiot customers, although I do remember (laughs) just
1: recently hearing about a woman who came into a bookshop angrily demanding to be sold Harry Potter and the
0: Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) I'm sure it's available. (laughs) But the, um, I mean, that that element of it all, I, I remember sort of, finding, it was quite satisfying because, because if you if you knew who wrote uh, um, Moby Dick, then you could just tell people there was something, there was a certain amount of uh, sort of, there's a, there's a professorial dimension to people in bookshops and libraries. So the sort of the status dynamic or the power dynamic is slightly different. Um, but there was that sense sometimes of just trying to shift as many books as possible in the week before Christmas and the kind of stressed, angry customers insisting on being served in front of other people. So you got a flavor, really, of what can happen in those service situations. You ever been a waiter, Tom? You ever done this kind of work? All worked in pubs? That's also when you see people slowly deteriorating from 7 o'clock to 12 o'clock in <laughs> terms of their manners. We did used to run a show in Ealing, do you remember? Where part yes. of the deal we yeah. got when
1: we got that venue was we were allowed to run our own bar. <laughs> uh, so it was a side
0: hustle as yeah. performers.
1: Over the course of mm. several weeks, I was involved in buying stock, mm. uh, getting it out of a van into a cellar, getting it out of a cellar, and getting it up behind the bar, and mm. yes, interacting with customers. Uh, so I've got a very kind of mild experience of doing that. Do you remember Alex mm. going to a, an extremely fancy pop-up restaurant once? Uh, You rang me up uh, all excited and said that uh, your number had come up. You'd been on a waiting list to go to a pop-up restaurant run by Pierre Kaufman on the top floor of Selfridges. I do remember it,
0: yeah. And we went and had the most fantastic meal. It was, interestingly, this does relate to an obsession of mine, which, and of yours, in fact, which is cooking. And um, there, was a, a, there was a famous dish that Kaufman created in the 70s, which then became famous in the 80s via Marco Pierre White, and it then had been out of circulation, but Kaufman was doing it again. So I was really delighted to go and do that. But do you remember, you said to me, where have they got this wait staff from? Mm. Because it was a pop up restaurant
1: yeah uh, and so there wouldn't have been a team that was already in place that just you know needed to be redirected, and you said to me, "I bet they're actors." Well,
0: how interesting. And they were. Yes. We yes. chatted to one of them. I did some, in fact, a very recent contract for the shop professionally was I was working with an organization that wanted to do a, a very kind of high-end luxury gallery event. And they invested a lot of time and energy and cash in training those people. And what was interesting was a lot of those people came from the world of... Um, air hostesses they, oh. they were kind of as, as i'm sure you know the you know, the world of uh, of of international flights is massively contracted, and so quite a lot of people who were in work of having to find other things to do there's a i think a dynamic that the the staff of an airplane of an airliner. Um, have to manage in that every single you know, hundreds and hundreds of people on that plane are all feeling to a certain degree anxious that they might be about to die, <laughs> and so yes. there's a kind of a particular emotional dynamic in that situation that they have to to, to nurture and uh, and also withstand because sometimes that anxiety comes out as extreme aggression and sort of inappropriate behaviour within a very confined and risky space. Yeah, even
1: if you aren't concerned you're about to die, you can certainly feel claustrophobic, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Bored. Yeah. Uh, and you've got nowhere else to be, so it's important that
0: someone is prepared to be nice to you. Well, the being nice was interesting because uh, we very I mean, famously, our generation haven't had this experience quite so much on the orange one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> EasyJet, easyJet, yes. yeah, EasyJet was the first kind of it's a bus, just get there yep. and chill out. And then, uh, and famously, Ryanair uh, uh, have doubled down on this on this problem and made it almost like a feature of the way they work. I think uh, when Deborah complained
1: about something on Ryanair, they literally. You don't have to fly with us. (laughs) (laughs) Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
0: emotional element. And I think that, I think, is, is what I was thinking about, about that this relationship between a professional person who is earning a salary or living on tips, potentially, um, and uh, a customer who, one way or another, is paying the fee which finds its way to that person. Um, and do, do we have a right to that emotional dimension? I, I know there's been an argument about, uh, about emotional labour being something we almost expect people to do for free, because very often service jobs are not paid particularly well, but the emotional demands placed on the people who do them are incredibly high. I remember when we were working at a big luxury apartment store, I just I asked them all, it must take a lot out of you doing this kind of work. When you finish and you go home at the end of the day, are you kind of out of generosity and warmth? And they all just roared with laughter and said, yeah, we always end up having these rows with our partners saying you, you're nice all day to people and you come home and you're horrible to me. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and, and I've, I've certainly I remember um, she, she has a slightly more uh, longer experience doing this when my partner was uh, worked for a, a work, she took a contract for a while when she was trying to get a flat working at a box office in the theatre and she said that the, you go in with a kind of a tank full of emotional energy doing that kind of work wanting to help people find the right seat hoping to have a lovely evening but people weren't always as nice to you as really they ought to have been. And and she said that pe- people will go into that kind of work with a, a differing amount of, uh, of gas in their tank. And when you start doing it, it's almost like there's a ticking clock. Um, some people, it almost feeds, so they can sustain it for a very long period of time. And uh, Some people, you know, they can last six months and eventually they just go, I'm not paid enough for this and uh, you know, s- slam their apron on the desk and walk out. Uh, so the- there is that element of it, which I find really interesting. Because I think also the demands can kind of go in both directions as well. And I think that's one of the hardest
1: things. You know, If I sit down in a restaurant, let's say, mm. and order something, I have no way of knowing whether the person coming to take my order is at the beginning of a shift, mm. this is their dream job, yeah. and they're having the time of their life. Yeah. Or whether they're in hour eight mm. of an incredibly long shift, and someone has just been a appallingly rude to them for no justification whatsoever. Yes. But I expect the same cheerful demeanour from everybody
0: I interact with. Yes, that element of it all is, uh, is, uh, is I think, often the, the thing that makes the difference. If you feel like you can relax in, in, in somebody's hands and worry about your own feelings rather than theirs, I think that, I think, is one of the things about a really special service experience. I remember, in fact, we once collaborated with him. There was a, a, a TV show. And I found this really interesting because it was Michel Roux, who is the chef proprietor of Le Gavroche, big Michelin-starred Mayfair restaurant, um, and his colleague Fred Sirier, who was the maitre d' at Galvin at Windows, which is on the corner of Hyde Park. Um, And they got together with a bunch of kids, really. They were teenagers who, I can't remember where, what, where they were drawn from, but they weren't obvious waiters in Michelin-starred restaurants. And so it was partly about um, teaching people the, the secrets of high-end service, but it was also about, uh, I, guess, I guess, the imaginative journey of communication. Um, what is it that's going on when people, like if I'm taking my wife out for a very expensive dinner... You, the waiter, don't know how long I've been saving up for this mm. necessarily. You don't know quite how high the stakes are. This may be the make or break dinner for our relationship. You know, maybe the first time I've taken this person out somewhere and I want to really treat them or impress them. You don't know how anxious I am about that relationship. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I think when they are at their best, and Syria made a big, big point of this, is you have to constantly be generous as uh, the service person and imagine that none of this has anything to do with you. Not taking it personally is the key to survival in that kind of, uh, of industry. And I'm, I'm struck that his own background, and he's very, very good as a, as, a sort of as a waiter and obviously as a television presenter now, his parents are doctors, Tom. They're from the world of healthcare, And so it's almost like you can see bad behavior and awkwardness as if it's a a sort of a a symptom of an illness rather than something which is anything to do with you. Doctors are an interesting one as well. Uh, Again, going back to the age of Downton Abbey, uh,
1: a doctor was seen as a sort of patrician expert Mm -hmm. who would see you, the patient, as a bundle of symptoms. (laughs) Uh, And uh, they would announce... Uh, what the cure for your condition was, and mm. uh, tell you to go off and do it. Whereas uh, these days, I think uh, a lot of doctors are seen more as sort of um, uh, father confessors, mm. people that they can confide in, and, and I, almost people expect that kind of waiter relationship to <laughs> the doctor to uh, create a a warm and welcoming atmosphere in the consulting
0: room. It's very striking, yeah, because of course we, particularly in the look UK... look after their emotional needs. Yes, I mean we, 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 we all, we feel like I've paid for this already in, our, in my taxes <laughs> because I'm a British person with the National Health Service. This may of course be very different for listeners um, who are living with different health insurance circumstances. Uh, it's interesting, the, that, w- I wonder if I agree with you about the, I mean I think the, uh, I, I'm always struck by historical accounts of what it was like in the old days and um, and I do think a, that to, to a certain degree there was uh, an extent when although a doctor was a scientific expert on a particularly important issue they were still a servant if you were calling them in to your place. like if they're coming around to your house in the UK still mm. these days either you're very ill or very elderly or rolling in cash <laughs> um, and it's your the same your personal physician it's yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. just as I think with teachers I remember reading a fascinating account by some grammar school boy who'd gone to a very swank public school and he was very puzzled by the dynamic between the other boys and the teachers and he realised oh these teachers Who are teaching, grading, judging? They are still servants for some of these people. Because
1: they are middle class. Yes.
0: Uh, and the children are upper class. Yeah. Um, one thing which I have noticed, and uh, I won't be alone to you, some of you hear this, is that when I find myself taking taxis, which I don't do all the time, I, I find myself saying to the driver, uh, calling him mate <laughs> when it's a bloke, um, and my toes curl inside my shoes. Uh, do you know what I'm Do you, uh, do, you do you on there? Put a little bit of, like, estuary spin. <laughs> no, I, I, not,
1: On I'm your not trying to.
0: Well. Right, I, think, I think there's a, there's a dimension. that part, One reason why I'm doing that, and I th- one reason why people do, is I think I'm, I'm embarrassed by the fact that I'm basically getting into my carriage and asking the, and asking the coachman to drive me somewhere. And uh, there's uh, something about. Banging that. on the ceiling with well, your cage. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> there's, I think there's, there's a certain. Top hat on your lap. Yeah, there's sort of inherited <laughs> shame about uh, 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 a kind of dynamic and relationship that really should be over. And when you call him mate, <laughs> then you're saying, uh, we're just the same. You and I. Yeah.
1: Tomorrow, <laughs> our positions could very well be reversed. Just the other way around.
0: Um, and of course, God, I'm I mean, as far as tomorrow is concerned, I mean, he may very well have to find another job because yes. the self-driving vehicle is, uh, is 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 not far off and in some places it's already here. That, I think, is really interesting because it makes me ask, well, how should we talk to each other and what are we? I mean, because I guess I'm bringing something. I'm bringing something totally unnecessary to it. Well, that's the flip side, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some people for whom uh, interacting
1: with people who are there to do a job is a source of stress and anxiety in mm. itself. And so as much as we've posed the question, how should people like waitstaff, uh, flight attendants and so on, interact with customers, how should we interact with them?
0: Uh, and what shall we do to not be the ones who get written up in those Facebook articles? Well, I tell you, there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful movie, which I'm, I'm always recommending. is uh, It's called Archipelago. It's directed by the great Joanna Hogg. Um, so let me give you the setup. So she she makes films about very rich people, um, and she treats their emotional life as if that's worthy of attention, which I think is practically radical. I think it's really interesting. Um, so the setup is um, our hero, played by Tom Hiddleston. He, he is uh, his parents are splitting up and so he goes to spend some time with his mother at one of the family's houses which is I think on the Silly Isles um, and one of the things he is because he's a young man kind of like having some sort of identity crisis he, he wants to make friends with the housekeeper and there is scene after scene which is sort of toe-curlingly embarrassing because his mother simply wants the housekeeper to bring the soup in and shove off back to her perfectly comfortable flat somewhere else in the building but he wants her to sit down at the table and have dinner um, and so i think there is in, in some ways although i think he's seeing himself as uh, as reaching out across boundaries and being and trying to shatter something which shouldn't exist he's actually creating an enormous amount of stress for that person and i think that uh, we should always be absolutely civil to anybody who's providing a service to us. Um, But I was just thinking, what what would be the right way to talk to that person under those circumstances? And I think what's most important is they are professionals. Mm. The reason they withdrew from these smart houses in the 20s and 30s when there was a great economic shift is that it was kind of embarrassing to be sort of living in a domestic circumstance with this strange power dynamic in which you weren't really master of your own space and so let's go and start a laundry and you can bring your linen to us rather than me in the basement running things through a mangle let's start a restaurant um, and you can come out in the evenings if you live in cities Um, and there is actually there's some there is much much more dignity to that. And so I think if you were looking for what, well, however, you speak to be providing services, the most important thing is to pay them properly. And to repeat book and, and also tip generously. Mm. I think that's something which is uh, often neglected by, uh, by British people, possibly as a kind of, as a legacy of saying, no, this is the way things ought to be. I don't need to pay for this as well. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for joining in. If you've got any experiences from either side of the service divide, please do get in touch and, uh, and let us know what they are. Um, if you're interested in coming and working with your people on some of these questions, we'd love to come and run a workshop. Get in touch with me on alex-spontaneity-shop.com. at the
1: hyphen Uh, Or you can hit us up on Twitter at SpontaneityShop or I'm at Tom Zielinski. And uh, yes, we'd love to hear from you if you've got any tales either of woe or of uh, stunning success, uh, either as the ideal customer or as the perfect service
0: provider. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren and Tom Zielinski. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinsky. You Can Talk to Anyone is distributed exclusively by Acast.